It's the end of the month, which means it's time for a media spotlight. Welcome to our second end of the month media spotlight. This month, our focus is on a lovely little treasure. Literally, this book is seven by five. It fits in your handbag or even a generous skirt pocket, and it's less than a hundred pages, but it is packed with wisdom presented beautifully. The book is Dietrich von Hildebrand's Marriage, The Mystery of Faithful Love. Who should read this book? I think that this book should be read in grade school. I think many Catholic parents understand conceptually that it's best to be blunt with their kids about the marital embrace, that it's up to them to be proactive, and by being blunt about the physiology of it, solidify for their child that questions are welcome. Otherwise, obviously, if kids don't get straight answers from their parents or are afraid to ask because their parents have not presented themselves as safe spaces for those discussions, kids are going to look for answers and they're liable to look in all the wrong places. In addition, bluntness is needed in order to combat the old heresy that all are conceived in sin because of this thought that the marital embrace is intrinsically evil. If it is good and a gift from God, then we should be able to be straightforward about it. And knowing how our bodies work, knowing how they naturally respond to the opposite sex, and not being afraid to ask questions about it are all solid goals of a well-rounded formation which a parent is obliged to provide for their child. But there's another part of these conversations to which Catholic parents need to be equally attentive, aside from knowing enough about the nitty-gritty so that a child feels that their parent, um, again, is open to questions. And that is preserving an attitude of wonder and awe regarding the marital embrace. This is the part of the conversation which I feel von Hildebrand's book addresses. There are two parts to this book. The first is love and marriage. And the second part is love and the mystery of sacramental marriage. And the book presents with so much joy and reverence what the marital embrace can do for the earthly and also eternal lives of spouses. The desire of children and young adults to get it before one actually engages in it is, I think, an attack from the devil seeking to wear away or even destroy the wonder and awe that is properly accorded to the marital embrace. And again, bluntness is needed. It is important for young people to know how their bodies work and why, so that they can be good stewards of their bodies. But neither is it good to be inappropriately graphic. Learning to think and speak about the marital embrace in higher language, in beautiful, eloquent language from an early age, is, I believe, essential to combating the animalism to which sex has been thoroughly reduced by secular culture. And this is, of course, an attitude with which the young are bombarded from every side, even from within the poorly catechized church. And it is certainly an attitude which basic secular biology, taught as it is required, 
only perpetuates. Not in the case of solid, straightforward biology uh, with the intent to harm, but you would not expect a straightforward biology course to address the sacramental nature of marriage. So what does the goal look like realistically with regards to forming a child in this particular area? My husband um, helped me to come up with this example, or rather he gave this example, um, that when a teenage boy has an erection, his reaction is not, oh my god, why is this happening? No one has ever talked to me about this. It's embarrassing. I need to find out what's going on. And then consequently starts searching in the wrong places for answers, possibly in trying to get it to happen again, based on what he noticed about those particular circumstances. Rather that when it happens, because it will, teenage boys will have this experience, his mental process is, ah, I know exactly why this is happening. Mom and dad explained it to me. It's normal and natural and shows that my body is working properly. It's a function of my body, which is a gift from God through which I can be sanctified, which means that the devil will try to twist it and turn it into an occasion of sin. So since I know how it happens and presumably have identified what I did or what someone else did that prompted it and I want to avoid the occasion of sin because I love God and I want to honor him and be able to experience this properly as a gift, now I can come up with a plan to do something differently from what I know happened. And you know that something might be a teenage boy deciding not to dance too close to a girl or practice better custody of his eyes. But for him to want to do that, for him to want to exercise self-control, he needs to know what is happening. He needs to know what is in his control and what isn't. And he needs to have an understanding of the bigger picture because it is that bigger picture that gives him something towards which to aspire. The marital embrace is a source of grace for spouses. That's incredible. And if parents can communicate how incredible that is, that is a huge win for those parents. And I really think that this book can help. If this book wasn't read in grade school, then certainly it's fantastic for any young adult at any age in any state of life. Learning to think and speak about the marital embrace with such reverence and passion for preserving the potential for it to be such an incredible source of grace in marriage, if one is called to marriage, is I think the biggest benefit for a young adult reading this book. I think it's safe to say that every young adult struggles with chastity, right? And viewing that struggle as indicative of God's gift, as indicative of God's intentions and the wisdom of God's design, and of knowing with confidence that the desire to be so wholly united to another human being is a joyful and heroic desire will ultimately help the young adult to see that struggle as less of a burden and more as the extraordinary opportunity that it is to respond to and reach for God's grace. For young adults especially, there are three quotes I want to share from the book. The first is this from part one, quote, Indeed, being in love is so far from contemptible. 
so far from being a consequence of the fall of man that within the natural order, being in love constitutes the only truly awakened state. A state in which we break the fetters of indolence and cease dragging ourselves dully through life. We become exactly the image of our relation to Christ. My beloved to me and I to my beloved who feedeth among the lilies. Thus, being in love is exalted as a figure of the highest and most sublime relationship to the Son of God. End quote. I share this first quote because I've been that young adult on the receiving end of guarding against infatuation. But it is important to distinguish between infatuation and sincerely being in love. There is enough discussion out there about distinguishing between being in love and loving and how in marriage there will be times when we don't feel particularly in love with our spouse but we are still bound to actively love them but i think some people equate being in love and infatuation and this attitude bleeds into marriage you see it as spouses not making an effort to stay deeply in love, not thinking that doing so is a priority. Here is a second quote from the first part of the book to expound on this responsibility of spouses to make such an effort. Quote, love is a task and a duty for both partners because our laziness, our dullness, and our constant falling back into the periphery stultifies our vision. It is difficult always to keep before us in all its same clarity and splendor, the image of the other person so wonderfully revealed by love. We should and must fight against this dullness, for it constitutes a sin against the temple which we erected in our marriage. In a certain sense, we are already unfaithful to the other when we cease to see him from within when we understand no longer the deepest character of his being, but regard him as we would regard other people from the outside. End quote. Being in love with someone is what enables us to see them from within, as von Hildebrand says, rather than from without. Very strong language here from von Hildebrand, calling this falling back into seeing our spouse from the outside, as we did before we fell in love with them a type of infidelity and saying that it is laziness that keeps us from keeping that sense of being in love alive. This is beautiful. And certainly the image and the understanding of marriage that young people should hold and aspire towards. And finally, a third quote from the first part of the book, which I want to discuss briefly for young adults. Quote, Conjugal love is so far from being a compound of friendship and sensuality that its characteristics distinguish it from all other forms of love, actually serve as the bridge towards the sphere of sexuality and solely make possible the organic union of the two. A compound of friendship and sensuality is repugnant it would be a juxtaposition of heterogeneous elements, and the sensual sphere would in no way be sanctified by a discordant combination of this kind. End quote. 
Now, I share this quote because there is a phenomenon which is not specific to young Catholics. People settling for marrying their best friend. Don't get me wrong. It's a great thing when the dating relationship that you have with your future spouse is at best friend level associated with all of those things that you look for in a best friend someone you can talk to about anything someone around whom you can be wholly your unaffected and most raw self someone who shares your interests and goals etc etc but it is not friendship or rather friendship alone is not enough to sustain married love. And this phenomenon has been identified elsewhere by others as something that desperately needs to be addressed. One person I'm thinking of in particular, um, Dr. Jeffrey Zoller at the University of Cincinnati is very explicit with his students that marriage assumes sex. That it is unhealthy to bind yourself with a marriage vow to someone to whom you have no sexual attraction. That friendly love is not enough to constitute married love and that to expect it to grow into married love and to sustain a marriage is unhealthy and usually very unrealistic (laughs) as a train of thought. So great book, great book for young adults. Two last quotes for young adults discerning marriage to chew on from the introduction, which is actually written by Dietrich's wife, Alice, quote, to abolish marriage is self-indulgence. Only cowards malign marriage. They run from the battle, defeated before the struggle even begins. Marriage alone can save love between man and woman and place it above the contingencies of daily flux and moods. Without this bond, there is no reason to wish to transform the dreariness of everyday life into a poetic song. End quote. And the last quote from part one, quote, no natural good has been exalted so high in the New Testament. No other good has been chosen to become one of the seven sacraments. No other has been endowed with the honor of participating directly in the establishment of the kingdom of God, end quote. And finally, of course, I recommend this book for all married persons. You know, I keep coming back to this point of higher language. What I've observed, and also what I've experienced of weariness in marriage, often stems from a narrow focus on the natural portion of it, uh, hopefully only temporary, um, forgetfulness of the supernatural reality of marriage, the sacramentality of it. There's a beautiful passage here from part two of the book that I'd like to share, which addresses this, quote, as the objective bond of marriage is thus connected in a threefold way with God and belongs not only to the consorts, but also to Christ, all loving acts, the fulfillment of the vocation which lies in marriage and the actualization of its meaning as an ultimate community of love, become a divine service in a stricter and more radical sense than professional work performed with the intention of glorifying God. 
Marriage in Christ thus surpasses by far the way in which all things, even the most insignificant, can and must be related to God, according to the words of St. Paul. Therefore, what, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever else you do, do all in the glory of God. End quote. In our very first podcast episode, we discussed at length an attitude that some wives have of, if your husband is being difficult, just focus on your own journey to heaven. You know, it's your husband's fault if he's not walking next to you. And I'd like to share now a passage from the first part of Von Hildebrand's book speaking to this attitude. Quote, Of all terrestrial communions, conjugal love is the most pronounced form of an I-thou relationship. The beloved person is the object of our thoughts, sentiments, will, hope, and longing. She becomes the center of our life as far as created goods are concerned. He whose heart is filled with such conjugal love lives not only with his beloved, but for his beloved. Certainly such an I-thou relationship in its purest form exists only between the human soul and its heavenly bridegroom, Jesus. In the last analysis, we must live only for him, and in marriage too, the two partners live together for him. But in the realm of created goods, conjugal love means living for one another. Compared with all other human relationships, the two partners live in a definite I-thou communion. End quote. One iteration of this attitude that I would especially like to highlight now, I have seen wives who make the mistake of putting their children above their husband, again claiming that their husband is supposed to walk beside them in raising the kids and prioritizing the kids, and ultimately that it's their husband's fault if he fails to be there. That any relationship issues that reveal themselves once the couple are empty nesters falls on the shoulders of the husband because he fell behind. That it's his comeuppance for expecting to be prioritized when there were children to be raised. That attitude in a wife is so painful to witness. That's where you see couples who don't know how to talk to each other once there are no kids in the house to be talking about. You see late separations, even actual divorces. These are the people who are saying, well, they just grew apart while raising kids. And wives justify this deprioritization of their husband by saying that raising kids is fulfilling their God-given call. Again, that it's the husband who is being selfish by expecting the wife to make time for him when she has so much on her plate, you know? This thought that, hey, my husband is an adult. He can take care of himself. The kids need me. He should know that. He should understand that. And he's not pulling his weight. No one is saying that your husband shouldn't be helping you. Von Hildebrand says, in marriage, the two partners live together for him, meaning Jesus. But then he goes on to say, but in the realm of created goods, conjugal love means living for one another. And that is what too many Catholic wives, specifically Catholic mothers, are seriously missing today. 
you don't have conjugal love with your children. Your service to them is temporary. And the key component to excellent service to your children is the health of your marriage. If a marriage is not healthy because a spouse justifies neglecting it due to having children, then the service to the children is objectively heavily compromised. And then when we start talking about spouses living for each other, I've seen wives start to get very thorny and say that that's idolizing one's husband and how sinful that is. And of course, idolatry is indeed sinful. But of the danger of idolatry, von Hildebrand says, quote, natural conjugal love exposes us to the dangers of making the beloved the absolute center of our life. This love can degenerate into idolatry. In supernatural conjugal love, this danger is banished. It consciously builds itself in the love of the king and center of all hearts. The ultimate logos of this love is participation in that eternal love which Jesus holds for the soul of the beloved. Nor will it be any the less ardent for this, any less directed towards the beloved. On the contrary, it acquires an ardor and ultimateness which the merely natural-minded cannot even imagine. For abandonment to good is deepest and strongest when the good is viewed in the exact order ordained by God. Far from being a superabundance of love, any idolatry is rather a perversion, and therefore a diminution of love. End quote. For the woman who is tempted to make this claim that to love their husband more would be to idolize him, I tend to think that that sort of woman is actually in very little danger of loving her husband too much, and rather that they should be considerably more concerned about sinning through stinginess towards him. And I understand. When my husband and I were living apart, and precisely because our son and I were not in the house with him, every night was spent deep in his sinful addictions. But then my sin was in deciding that his behavior meant that he didn't deserve my attention or my service. This understanding that the danger of idolatry is banished by authentic, supernatural, conjugal love is, I've learned, a truth which is consistently known with conviction by those in healthy marriages. Women who have been married 30 years or more, I see those in happy and healthy marriages always looking for more ways to love their husband, to more deeply express it and more consistently and more creatively express it. And then, and then, yeah, on the other hand, there are these women who, though having been married just as long, really are afraid. And it's not idolatry that they fear, it's surrender. It's surrender and abandonment to divine providence that they fear, it's pride. Because if they can always be guarding against idolatry, there's always one less way in which they're justified in choosing to not die to self for the sake of their spouse. That's where you get women married 30 years still complaining that their husband is a child in this way or in that way, claiming that he never grew up because she still has to put away his laundry and he never got that promotion. It's very sad.
So two last quotes which I would like to share, both from the second part of the book, and here they are. Quote, Conjugal love represents something so great, so ultimate, so vitally enveloping of the whole person, that its depth can be taken as a measure of the depth and greatness of the whole man. It offers the highest and noblest earthly happiness, one which fills the soul more than any other value on earth. It is the noblest of all natural powers, moving the world beyond anything else. End quote. And the second quote, one last quote. Again, the book is Dietrich von Hildebrand's Marriage, The Mystery of Faithful Love. And this is from part two. Quote, He whose life is dominated by the intention of avoiding any possible cross excludes everything that gives human life grandeur and depth. He will never know real abandon, never know real deep happiness. Remaining in a mediocre self-centeredness, he will never be able to do anything without a certain reserve. He will always provide for a possibility of retreat. End quote. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you. And we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast. Thank you.